kings and he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I, I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous and his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Uh, I wish I could describe him to you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your hands. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah, that's my king. That's my king. If you believe that, church, would you say amen? amen? Well, just so no one gets nervous, I do want to uh, announce this morning this is a clip-on. So just relax. We'll be totally fine this morning. I heard a story this week. A man went on a vacation to the Middle East uh, with most of his family begrudgingly taking even his mother-in-law. And during that vacation, while they were visiting Jerusalem, his mother-in-law fell sick and unexpectedly died. And so with the death certificate in hand, he went to the American consulate office to make arrangements to send the body back to the States for proper burial on the console after hearing the death of his mother-in-law said my friend the sending back of a body to the states is incredibly expensive it's approximately fifteen thousand dollars the console went on and said in most cases the person responsible for the remains uh, normally decides to bury the body here and that would only cost a hundred and fifty dollars and so the man thinks for some time and he answers the council and he says I don't care how much it costs we're going to send the body back that's what I want to do 
And the counselor, after hearing this, said, you must have loved your mother-in-law very, very deeply, considering the difference between $15,000 and $150 for burial. And to which the man replied, he said, well, to tell you the truth, counsel, he said, I know of a case many, many years ago of a person that was buried here in Jerusalem, and on the third day he was resurrected, and knowing my luck, it will happen again. Send her back. Other than that guy, most people are excited about the possibility of resurrection. So let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn this morning to one of the most classic passages in all the New Testament on the resurrection, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, for a message titled, Easter uh, is the Answer. You know, there's always a temptation to do something clever or come from a different angle on Easter. Uh, But this morning, I'm just preaching a simple message for one simple reason. It never gets old. It never gets old talking about an empty tomb. It never gets old talking about our resurrected king. It never gets old about the message and the hope and the power on that very first Easter. And we believe uh, that Easter still holds all the answers to the greatest problems that have plagued humanity since the beginning of time. And so Easter is a vintage message, but it is always, always relevant. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, beginning in verse 1 this morning. It says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he arose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And after that he was seen by Cephas, and then by the twelve, and after that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain in the present, but some have fallen asleep. And after that he was seen by James, and then by all the apostles. Then the last of all he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. And so this morning, the the title is Easter is the Answer. And all throughout humanity, since the beginning of time, there have been questions that have plagued humanity. Philosophers have tried to solve it. Theologians have debated about it. Sociologists have seen the effects of it. Psychologists have tried to explain it away. But there are still some fundamental problems in humanity that all of us in the room this morning will wrestle with. And we believe with all of our conviction this morning that Easter is the answer to all of those problems. Easter gives the answer to life's greatest questions. And first we see in the text is simply this. Easter is the answer to the problem of sin. Uh, Someone said this, when it comes to the doctrine of sin and total depravity, uh, it's the easiest doctrine to prove. You just look around the fallen nature of our world, you turn on the news, you look at the newspaper, if you're honest, you look in the mirror, and here's how everyone in the room knows the fact that man has fallen uh, from his very birth and position he has. If you've ever raised any kids, you know they're little sinners, right? That you don't have to tell, like I thought, I was afraid that my kid's first word was going to be don't. Because that's all I said the first two years I felt like, don't do that, don't touch this, don't, don't go there, don't hit him, don't pull that, don't sell, you know, all those things. Because by our very nature, we're just prone uh, towards sin. The Bible confirms this. It says in Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In Romans chapter 3 verse 10, it says there is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who can claim to say, I've lived a perfect life. And our record of failure, it haunts us day and night. It 
whispers in the darkness, it shames us in the light, and so sin stalks the trail of every single person who's ever been born. No one's been born without sin. No one lives without sin. No one can claim to be totally free from sin. As a matter of fact, the Bible says in 1 John that if we claim we have no sin, then we're a liar. Then truth is not in us. And so it is a problem that has plagued us for all about humanity. And so the question this morning is not, am I a sinner? Because the answer is always yes. The question this morning is, how do I get rid of the guilt I feel in my soul? And people have wrestled with that, and people have wondered about that, and there's all kinds of strategies, but I believe you could categorize most of them in three categories for people handling their problem of guilt. Some people, they just try to do good. They have this guilt problem. They're not sure how to fix it, so they just say, I'm going to be the best person that I can be. And so they they hope that there's some eternal scales, and at the end when they stand before God, a holy judge, that hopefully their good outweighs their bad. And if it does, then they'll gain entrance into heaven. So they fill a life full of all of good works. They work in the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts and Cub Scouts. They uh, serve in the Rotary Club and United Way. They mow their lawns. They pay their debts, all with the hope that one day their good will outweigh their bad and absolve them of their guilt before a holy God. Some people try to cover their guilt through the pursuit of pleasure. That they just want life to keep going and they want as much pleasure as they can, as much excitement as they can, as much activity as they can. And they want a life for them becomes one nonstop frat party. Everything is about happiness and laughter and a good time. And the reason for so many people is here's what they're afraid of. That if life slows down and it gets quiet, then I'll be haunted with the reality of who I am and the guilt that I experience. And so for some folks, they try to party life away in the pursuit of pleasure is how they deal with their guilt. And some people choose religion. You say, well, I, I thought that you would be for religion. Listen, I'm all about a relationship with Jesus Christ. But religion is simply man's working his way back to God. And so some people, to solve that problem of guilt, they try as much religion as they can. They read their Bible as much as they can. They, they uh, go to church and service as much as they can. They try to volunteer as much as they can. Some of them get really spiritual. They volunteer to teach third grade boys. But the reality is all the works were never good enough because the work simply is never enough. There's never a point in time where a person can lay their head down on their pillow and say, I've done enough. I've arrived. I've fixed what's broken between me and God. I finally have this guilt thing fixed. And all these answers fail because they don't deal with the root issue that we have hearts that have been ravaged by sin before a holy God. And so Easter answers the problem of guilt. You say, well, I thought that the death of Christ forgives us of our sins. The Bible does teach that. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. He says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. You say, that's the death of Christ. Well, what, what, how does Easter fix that? Because if you keep reading in verse 4, here's what he says. And that he was buried, then he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And so when God raised Christ from the dead, it was God the Father putting his stamp of approval on his Son and saying, this is a worthy sacrifice. This is a worthy substitute. You no longer have to bear the wrath of, of sin because he bore it on your behalf and it was good enough as evidenced by the fact that the tomb is empty. And by the way, it's still empty today. Amen? And so Scripture clearly says that Easter is the answer to the sin problem that you and I have. You see, one writer said this, I love this. He said, without Easter, Good Friday wasn't quite good enough. 
The death of Christ forgives us of sins, but only because the resurrection of Christ has made that death effective. And so Easter, Easter is the answer to life's problem of guilt and shame of our sins. We also see in this text simply this, is that Easter is the answer to the problem of suffering. I remember uh, years ago, I remember hearing a sermon and a, a talk given uh, by Dr. Jerry Falwell. And uh, he said this, he said, uh, whether you know it or not, he said, you're either in a trial, you're coming out of a trial, or you're heading towards a trial. Have you found this out? Life is hard. I've never had anyone in 14 years of pastoring come into my office and say, uh, Pastor, let me just share this with you. My life is going too well. Would you get down and pray with me that God would send some tribulation my way? Would you get down and pray with me that life would get really, really hard? No one ever prays that, but here's what we all acknowledge this morning is that hard times find us, do they not? It's a part of living in a fallen world. And many times when we walk through the most difficult and darkest seasons of our life, we'll say things like this, or maybe you've heard other people say things like this, were it not apart from my faith, I have no idea how I would have gotten through that dark valley. I can't tell you how many times I've stood at funeral homes with families and they said, Pastor, I, I just don't know what people do apart from Christ in their life in times like these. And so maybe you've heard someone say that. Maybe you've heard, uh, maybe you've said it yourself. But the reality is simply this, that even though Jesus doesn't take away all of our problems and our pain and our suffering once we come to him, what he does promise is this, that in those darkest and deepest times, I will carry you when you cannot walk. What he does promise is that, lo, I am with you always, even to the uttermost parts of the earth. What he does promise us is that I will never leave you or forsake you. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. But those things are only true if the tomb is empty. Think of all these promises and anchors we get from the scriptures that aren't true if Easter isn't true. I wrote down several. Isaiah 41 says this, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. It's not true if Easter's not true. Romans chapter 8 says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come, neither height nor depth or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What an incredible promise. But it's not true if Easter's not true. The Bible says in Romans 15, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope. That's what everyone wants in a season of suffering because when you're suffering, it seems like there is no hope. And what he says is, during those times, I'll fill you with a supernatural peace that passes all understanding. But that's not true if Easter's not true. And then Philippians chapter 4, one of my favorite verses in the Bible says this, Be anxious for nothing. How many of you uh, know what it's like to worry? Someone ever worried? Would you raise your hand? You said, hey, I, I've had children. I've worried, Right? And so the reality is that so many times we look at worry and we talk about worry being a sin. I've preached on worry. I'll never forget one time I preached a sermon on worry out of Matthew chapter 6. And a lady came up the end and I could just tell she was anxious. And I thought, I just preached on worry. And I said, she's like, I just have a problem with worry. I said, what are you worried about right now? She said, I'm worried that I worry too much. And I said, you've got a problem. But the scripture says that worry and fear don't have to define our lives because we have a Savior who cares for us, and so therefore we can cast all our cares upon him. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Philippians 4, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with gratitude. Make your requests known to God. That's a worthless exercise if Easter is not true. And so all those promises 
provide an anchor for our faith when the bottom of life falls out. But if Easter isn't true, then neither are any of those promises that have sustained you in some of life's most difficult times. You say, where does the Bible say that? Chapter 15, verse 14, what's he say? He says that in Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. If Christ is not risen, your faith is also empty. Basically what he's saying is all those verses of comfort, if Christ is not raised and Easter is not true, then at the end of the day, the best they are are bumper stickers. They're weak things we use to prop ourselves up. He said if Christ isn't raised, then all the preaching and all the comfort from the Word of God is worthless and all the promises of the faith are totally void unless the tomb is empty. Many times people have asked me, they said, what what is life like after death? And I said, I don't know, I've never been there, but I said, I've read about it a couple times. The Bible doesn't give us all the details, but it gives us some descriptors of heaven and hell. And one writer said this, he said, "Uh, I want T.S. Eliot's called hell. He said, it's the great void, it's the land of nothingness. He said, we might imagine it's the one place in the universe where you're utterly, totally, and eternally alone. You scream and no one answers, you cry for help, but no one hears your voice, you're all alone. He said, I believe that's what hell is like, the place of utter aloneness. And against that awful reality stand those words of Jesus, I am always with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. But those promises are only true if Easter's true. The Lord Jesus promises over and over, but it's only true so as far as Easter's true. And Paul said, listen, if Christ isn't raised, then your preaching is worthless and your faith and everything attached to your faith is totally in vain. We also see in this text is that Easter is not only the problem of our answers, our, our sin and our shame. It also answers the problem of suffering that Christ walks through us during those times and comforts us. But we also see in this passage this, is that Easter is the answer to the problem of death. It's the answer to the problem of death. Someone said the stats on death are still the same, one out of every one. Someone said there's only two things you can count on life, and it's death and taxes, Right? 4,000 years ago, Job asked the question in Job 14, If a man dies, will he live again? Is that not the greatest of all questions? It's the central question that that Easter was meant to answer. And look at the incredible promise related to the problem of death in chapter 15, verse 26. Here's what it says. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. You say, well, pastor, I'm, I'm no theologian, but listen, I... Every now and then, whether I want to or not, I, I still have to visit the, the funeral home. And so how, how can you say that, that death has been defeated? How can you say that enemy is, is no longer the enemy of humanity? Because people still die. And so how has death been swallowed up in victory? Many years ago now, I guess, I had the privilege of having uh, Dr. Gary Habermas as a professor at Liberty University. And Dr. Habermas is the world's leading expert on the historical evidence of the resurrection. He's debated it all over the world. He's never lost a debate. He is absolutely the expert on the resurrection of Jesus. And so here's his answer to how uh, death has swallowed up in victory because of Easter. Here's what he said, his own personal testimony. He said, my wife and I visited the hospital in 1995 for what was described as a fairly routine test. Within minutes, however, he said, my world changed forever. Her illness was terminal. He said, there was no remedy. I measured my life by the severity of the shocking news that arrived repeatedly in the days ahead. He said, sometimes I was unsure how to place one foot in front of the other. He said, I remember those days very clearly along with the daunting questions. His wife's name was Debbie. He said she was only 43 years old. We had four 
children still at home. He said, but four months later, he said, Debbie was gone. He said, we celebrated our 23rd anniversary while she was in bed. My dearest friend was gone irrevocably. The pain had failed to subside. What was I going to tell my children about our faith that we clung to during that time? He said, but during that time, a graduate student of mine came up and asked me this. He said, Dr. Habermas, where would you now be if Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead? He said, for 40 years, I had been studying this issue uh, historically, theoretically. He said, but now God said, take this truth and apply it to your own daily life. He said, there the facts of history begin to touch my own life. And he said, nothing altered the pain over and over and over. And here's what he said. He said, but this is what I came to realize. If God didn't stop his son's pain, on what grounds could I demand better treatment? But Jesus' prayer was answered after his suffering ended on the first Easter morning. Here's what he said. He said, in a similar manner, Debbie's resurrection would also be God's answer. Listen to what he said. This is fascinating. He said, I still don't know why she died. But I do know the one who raised his son. And he said, Jesus' resurrection triumphs my greatest suffering. Its death has been swallowed up in victory for those who are in Christ. And listen to what he says. He said, because if God raised his son, then one day he would raise Debbie too. Folks, you see, when a person places their faith in Christ, listen, death is not something that God does to them. Death is something that God does for them. Death is not a punishment. The Bible describes for those who are in Christ, death is a promotion. It's not something that happens when we're bad. It's something that God rewards us with when we're in Jesus Christ. And so that's how we can proclaim with integrity that death has lost its thing. It's been swallowed up. And victory is what the Scripture describes. But that's only true if Easter's true. Maybe you're here this morning and said, you know what, to be honest, I, I appreciate that. Maybe you're here this morning and you think, I hope he ends soon. I'm going to, so relax. Maybe you're here this morning and you said, you know what, I, I really didn't even want to come, to be honest. Like, I came here because my mom said I had to come. Raise your hand if you're an adult and still scared of your mom. Would you just acknowledge that today in the Lord's house, right? Like, I don't want to go to church, but I do want to eat Easter lunch, so I'm going, Right? You say, I'm here. Listen, I, I hear, I, I get it. But I've still got some doubts. Listen, that's fine. Here's what you need to understand this morning. Faith is not the absence of doubt. Doubt has to be present for faith to even exist. Doubt has to be present for faith to be exercised over doubt. There are still some things I do not understand. I've got an undergraduate degree, a graduate degree in theology. There, there are still times where I don't understand you know, things with the Bible, some mystery about that, or, or why God allows certain things to play out in certain ways. But, the, but faith is not the absence of doubt. Faith is operated in presence of doubt. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is unbelief. Look at verse 11. What's he say? The, the, the key that unlocks Easter, the key that takes Easter from being a story to being your story is not the absence of doubts. The key that unlocks all of that is belief. Look what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 11. What's he say here? He says, therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. And then after that verse, he unfolds all of these promises all of these things, all of these keys that belief unlocks of the sting being gone out of death and the resurrection and the hope and Christ and all of those things. Belief is the key 
that unlocks it all. But let me tell you what that belief is not. It's not simply agreeing with the facts of the story. The Bible says this in James chapter 2, that even the devil believes and trembles. And so it's not just agreeing, I believe that Jesus died on the cross, I believe he was buried and rose. It's not just agreeing with the facts of the story. It's making that story your story. In the first service, I had uh, the privilege of baptizing my, my 14-year-old daughter. There, listen, uh, there has never been a day in her life where her dad was not a pastor. Not, not a day in her life. She knew the Easter story. She knew the right answer. She was baptized uh, as a child. But she came to the place that around Christmas time this past year that even though she knew the right answer, she realized she didn't have a right relationship. She had heard the Easter story dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of times. But up until that point, it was a story that she agreed with, but it was not her story. And so around Christmas, she gave her life to Christ. And she said, I want this to be my story. And so let me ask you a question this morning in closing. Is the Easter story your story? Or is it simply a story that you agree with? Is it your story? It, has it defined your life? Was there a time or a season in life where you gave your life to Christ, you repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone? Can you honestly say that the message of Christ and what Easter is all about governed your life? Is there genuine evidence of a Christ follower or is it just a story that you agree with the facts? Or is it your story? That's not semantics. That's not just a difference in word choice. That's the difference in eternity. Whether it's a story or whether it's your story. You know, the word gospel means good news. That's, that's what gospel literally means. And so let me close today with some good news. If the Easter story is a story, but it's not your story, it can be today. And that's some good news. You know why? Because Easter is the answer. Always has been, always will be. And so I'm going to invite you right now to make the Easter story your story this year. Would you bow your heads this morning? Heads bowed and eyes closed this morning. I just want to ask you once again, is Easter a story? Or is it your story? Was there a time or a season where you came and confessed your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone and the message of Easter that day changed your life and it changed your eternity? Is the Easter story your story? It's life's answer to sin. It's life's answer to suffering. It's life's answer to death. Easter is the answer. If you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus Christ, you're not here by accident today. God is speaking to you through his word, through his spirit. He's drawing you to himself. And so let me ask you this morning, would you trust Christ right now? You can get saved right in your seat. You don't have to join a church. You don't have to get baptized. You don't have to walk down an aisle. You can accept Christ right now today by faith. You say, Pastor, I, I would love to do that. I want Easter to be my story. But I don't know what to say. Would you just join me in prayer? It's a model prayer, nothing magic behind it. It's the faith that saves you. Would you join me if that's your heart's desire? God, I know that you love me. As evidenced by what Jesus did for me on the cross. But I also admit today that I'm a sinner in need of forgiveness. 
My life doesn't measure up to the standard set by Jesus himself. And so, Father, right now, I'm trusting Jesus Christ alone for salvation. I want to invite Christ to come into my life, forgive me of my sins, be my Lord and Savior, and from this day forward, I want to follow Jesus Christ. Thank you for saving me. Heads are still bowed and eyes are still closed. Maybe you're here and that's the first time you've prayed that prayer and received Christ today. Maybe you're here and you prayed to receive Christ a long time ago, but you've gotten out of fellowship with the church, and so maybe it's the time now where you just re- want to rededicate yourself to some truths that you need to reestablish in your life. And maybe you're here and you've been walking with the Lord intimately for a long time, and maybe just one more time you want to say, Lord, thank you for Easter. Thank you for life's answer to sin, suffering, and the grave. It never gets old. If you're here this morning and you made some kind of decision, say, Pastor, pray for me. I've rededicated my life to Christ. I've received Christ today. I just want someone to pray for me. I don't know what the next steps are. Would you just lift up your hand and say, Pastor, pray for me. That's it. Amen. Anybody else? Lift up your hand today. Pastor, pray for me. Amen. Father, I pray for those who responded today to Jesus' invitation. Whether it's a new relationship, reestablishing an old one, or just saying thank you for walking with me during the most difficult times. God, we are humbled and grateful that Easter, no matter how old the message is, is still the answer. May the empty tomb continue to overwhelm us. Father, our lives are filled with gratitude today. And even though it seems inadequate, we say thank you. Thank you for providing answers to life's greatest problems. Thank you for giving your own son his life so that we may have life with you for eternity. We're grateful this morning, Lord, for an empty tomb. It never gets old. We say we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.